and just hold it up. It's something that's contagious. It's something that's beautiful. It's something that's wonderful. But everything the Holy Spirit does, I have such high regard for him. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to the House of Bliss podcast, your favorite show you've never heard of and the Internet's best kept secret. I'm sitting here in my little cave of bliss, overlooking my backyard in the beautiful Slavic village neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio, God's favorite city. And it's a gorgeous sunny day. The birds are chirping. My neighbor's 42 dogs are barking. And as always during this time of year, my nose is swollen with mucus. It's not the coronavirus. It is just that nature hates me. In fact, I'm not really sure why nature hates me. I like me, but I'm not allergic to a lot of things. I'm just allergic basically to anything fresh that's not lettuce for some reason. Anytime I eat fresh fruits and vegetables, I get irritated. Milk, can't have milk. And uh, wheat, definitely can't have wheat. Um, But also just being outside, nature seems to not like me very much. Uh, Every time this time of year comes around, I... My eyes water and I can hardly stop sneezing. So thankfully, I'm on like seven or eight different allergy medic. Okay, maybe not seven or eight. I'm on two. Two different allergy medications that are doing the trick. Also, anytime my skin touches grass, I get uh, itchy, like really, really itchy red bumps. So yeah, if you believe in miracles, you want to pray for me that I would get over my nature allergies, feel free. But that has nothing really at all to do with what I wanted to talk to you guys about today. But um, before I go on, if if this is your first time listening to this show, you might want to back up because if you didn't notice, you are on part C of a series within a series. And while this part may not be quite as dependent on the other parts as some of the others, it really would help if you just went back and at very least listened to part A of part five. I know that probably sounds dizzying, but it would definitely make a little more sense if you start from the beginning. Well, as always, before we really jump in today, I just wanted to give a huge thank you to my patrons. Love you all so very much. Because of you and your generous giving every single month, I get to do this. I love it so much. As you might imagine, it takes a whole lot of work. So if you want to help me continue, if you if you believe in what God is doing through me and through this podcast, um, all you have to do is for as little as $1 a month, you can sign up on our Patreon page. I'll put the link in the show notes of this episode. But anyway, that brings me to today's subject. I wanted to uh, continue. We're, we're talking about the cross. We're talking about how, you know, the whole idea of this series is kind of talking about how the cross of Jesus Christ, I mean, we might give it lip service every Sunday, but I hardly know of anybody who's really diving into the full implications of the salvation that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. It is a full and wide and massive scope of salvation. I mean, there's a reason why at the end of Mark, Jesus said to go and preach the gospel to all of creation. Because literally all of creation was affected. That includes the heavens, the earth, everything uh, 
changed. All of history changed on the cross. And it's not just about saving men's souls. You know, when the Bible talks about salvation, it uses this word sozo, which means restored in your body, in your mind, in your spirit. It means a complete package restoration. You know, the Bible says in Romans uh, 5, I believe that, um, oh, I better pull that verse up. Uh, okay, here it is. It's it's Romans five seventeen. For if by the trespasses of one man, Adam, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Can I get an amen? Did someone in the house hear me today? That you get to reign in life. And it, it it's like it, it's in this life, in this material, physical world. It's not talking about some distant, disembodied afterlife after you die. But right here, right now, you get to reign as kings in Christ by his grace. And so today, uh, we've been looking about how, you know, Jesus unleashed this brand new realm of new creation. It's sort of allegorically, metaphorically, maybe semi-literally called the garden. It's this realm of being in the new creation, and it's here, and it's now. And so today, I want to look at how that affects money, cash, greenback, silver dollars, nickels, dimes, quarters, yen, renminbi, shekels, shillings, pesos, loonies, toonies, and anything else that can be used on a hip-hop album cover. I want to talk about money. So in the last episode, I talked about how when we understand what was lost at the fall, we can have a much better idea of what it means to be restored. So we broke down about how all of humanity's problems can be traced back back to this curse found in Genesis chapter 3 at the first fall of man. And the main three components of this curse are selfishness, toil, and death. So the last time I, I zoomed in on selfishness and how it disrupts the intimacy of human relationships, but this week we're going to look at toil. So... Quickly, we're going to revisit Genesis, but I first, I want to issue a challenge in the form of a question. I want you to ask, I want to ask you this. What if you knew way, way, way deep down in your guts, a hundred percent sure that absolutely every single one of your needs is going to be provided for no matter what? Would that relieve some anxiety? Would you believe it? Would you even accept it? Would you change jobs? Would you move? Would you give money away? Seriously, think about that for a second. And if all of your answers to that question were different from how your real life looks right now, I have good news. The blood of Jesus wants to bring your finances into the garden realm. So let's dive in, shall we? Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. God has always wanted to be our source. 
Have you ever heard one of those yoga Instagram influencers talking about connecting to source? Well, there's actually some truth in that. Uh, you've probably heard me talk about the idea of shalom before, but shalom is not just peace as in a sense of calm, but it is a return of everything into the state that God originally intended. It is a fullness of the mind, body, and spirit. It's everything in its right place as it should be. Now, evangelical Christians often want to knock on the concept of material prosperity. And I get it. Sure, Rolex-wearing preachers buying their fifth private jet on the backs of their poor parishioners is not biblical prosperity. But look at Solomon and all of the promises associated with wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Look how Jesus uh, fed the 5,000. There were excessive leftovers. God's ultimate intention for every one of us on this planet is not just that we would have our needs met, but that we would have more than enough spilling over. There's room for extravagance and excellence. And I say this all the time, but remember that God wasn't just content with a functional creation. Genesis says that the trees were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So it had to look good and taste good too. Because we get our, our cosmology from Genesis, we can see that God's idea of prosperity is all right here in the microcosmic Garden of Eden. You see, good food was plentiful in the garden. And before the curse, we're told that it looks like anyway they didn't even have to work for it. And so Genesis, uh, Genesis also tells us about how there was gold in the land and the gold was good. Now, it's interesting how that theme carries on throughout the Bible. Uh, this is what it says of King Solomon. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were solid gold, as were all the utensils in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. They were not made of silver, for silver was considered worthless in Solomon's day. And of course, the book of Revelation describes how in Zion, they use gold for pavement. So what does that show us? That when everything is as it should be, according to God's original dream, the things that you and I clamor for are considered worthless. <laughs> now, in Ezekiel 28, there's this kind of strange passage. Uh, it's about the king of Tyre. And oftentimes you'll hear people um, interpret it as being about Satan. But I've heard it argued that it's also describing the fall of man in some sort of mystical, allegorical way. So listen to this. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onyx, japper, jasper, lapis lazuli. Don't, and actually, I looked up how to say that because I didn't want to say that wrong. Turquoise and beryl. So this verse goes on to describe the mountain of God and the great assembly. And so if you've listened uh, to my episode I did a while back called According to the Pattern, you know that mountain language is suggestive of the governmental role of Eden. So whether you want to say this passage is talking about Satan or Adam or whatever, I will let these scholars fight over that. 
The only point I'm trying to make here is that the things you and I consider valuable, like precious stones, are ridiculously abundant in the garden dimension. And we also know this, extravagant abundance is built into the government of God. But then we get this interesting line from Job says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Now, if you notice, that's a really interesting switch from gold and stones being worthlessly abundant and readily available to requiring heavy labor and tools of extraction to find. Follow me here. When Adam was in submission to the government of God, the earth yielded its food and its precious stones to the image of Christ in him. But after the fall, when man became his own God and source, these resources that were so readily available began to hide themselves in the earth, and Adam had to find them by the sweat of his brow. Now, that might sound a little out there to some of you, but let's think about this. I want to remind you again that Eden was the microcosm of all of creation. And one of the central themes is that the mountain or seat of God's authority was there in Eden. God gave us, humanity, a unique place in creation. As it says famously in the Psalms, the earth he gave to men. Now, I don't fully understand this, but here's my theory, that because of our place in creation, when we fell into bondage, that same chaos and bondage was somehow released into the entire created order. Like, check out this passage from Romans. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that all creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to, to corruption into the freedom of the glorious children of God. But something else really important shifted. Rather than trusting God for provision, mankind began to trust in the sweat of our brow. Instead of looking up and reflecting the image of God, man began to look down into the dirt. When we as humanity began to focus our attention down instead of up, on self instead of God, on labor instead of provision, our minds became clouded and our image bearing became compromised. And since we no longer reflected the image of Christ, the very ground that once effortlessly yielded its resources instead gave us only thorns and thistles. Toil is not just about being enslaved by hardship. It's about how slavery to meeting our own needs eventually clouded our knowledge of God. The Eastern Church Father Athanasius talks about how it was the knowledge of God that was lost in Eden, and this loss of knowledge causes us to turn inward and lose our very connection to the source of life. It's as if the image of Christ in humanity became cracked, and it was this knowledge or connection to the Father as our source that Jesus came to restore. It was no accident that Jesus bore a crown of thorns. But more on that in a minute. 
We're going to get to the good news, but I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk for a minute about what happens when money becomes our God. Welcome back, everybody. Danny Silk has this famous expression. He talks about your God spot. That means the place in your heart of supremacy that is reserved for God alone. Well, what happens to people when money gets put in our God spot? You see, whether we do that out of a place of lack or out of a place of greed, money is a cruel master. So we're going to look at both of those angles, and I want to start with lack. Human beings were never meant to experience lack. Now, just like with death, we've been experiencing it for hundreds of generations. We've built systems, kingdoms, cultures, and identities around lack. Lack may be a very typical experience, but from God's point of view, it is not normal. It was never part of the design. And that's why humans have gotten so weird. When lack was introduced, life fundamentally shifted to becoming about survival. Adam and Eve weren't worried about surviving, which tells us that when all is as God intends it to be, we shouldn't be either. On the individual level, lack can lead to hoarding, stealing, and trauma. Values shift from being placed on eternal things like love and beauty to temporal things like food and shelter. Rather than being focused on the long term and dreams, life simply becomes about that next paycheck. Creativity and wonder get squelched by the daily grind. Have you ever felt that way? But Jesus modeled for us what a life free from toil looks like. It's not that he was excessively rich flying town to town on his Embraer lineage private jet. But he did say, I only do what I see my father doing, not I only do what my schedule has room for or I only do what my bank account allows me to do. I'm not trying to be harsh here, but this is a question I ask myself pretty often is, who really has my trust? Is it the guy writing my paycheck or is it my father in heaven? There's absolutely nothing wrong with having a job. I mean, I have a job. But there is something wrong, or at least something missing, if we have to set aside the voice of the Lord for our work. Now that's on the individual level. But on a government level, what happens when you have lack as a founding pillar of society? We take, we war, we pillage, we intimidate, we lie, we cheat, we exploit other nations. Human lives become expendable as long as it's good for economics. The environment becomes expendable. Family becomes expendable. Honestly, take a good look at all of the biggest systematic issues of our day and you can trace it back to the mishandling of money. Because human beings that don't know their father can stoop very, very low if the getting is good. As the great prophets in the Wu-Tang Clan once said, cash rules everything around me. 
that, that may not be true in the kingdom, but as far as world systems go, that definitely rings true. But there's another way that lack affects humanity, and that is that it paves the way for greed. One of my favorite album covers of all time is from DJ Khaled. Now, I am not into his music at all, but he has this album out called Suffering From Success, and it makes me laugh every time I see it. Definitely just Google it real quick. It's a picture of him, and he's all decked out in excessively decadent clothes, just looking overwhelmed and doing a facepalm with his stunningly bejeweled hands. It's got to be one of the funniest brags I've ever seen. He's just crushed under the weight of his own riches. <laughs> now, I'm not highlighting this to pick on DJ Khaled, but more I'm bringing it up to illustrate how our culture conditions the people who have to keep on chasing more. Money and the status that comes along with it is one of the pillars of modern society. And scripture calls this the pride of life and the lust of the eyes. We are all bombarded daily by the lie that if we just get that next thing, we will be happy. I actually read somewhere that the average person is exposed to 5,000 advertisements per day. Back when I had my very first job at McDonald's, I remember being struck by one of the marketing posters for their peppermint mocha. Um, It was right during Christmas time, and there was this poster of the peppermint mocha, and it just said, True Joy. Or maybe it was something more like, The Joy of the Season. And I remember just thinking, really? You're just going to spit on baby Jesus like that? But here's where I'm going with this. The Bible is intensely vocal against greed. Not because God wants us to be threadbare and impoverished, But because greed is a trap, no matter how much money you acquire, it will never be enough. It will not satisfy that longing in your soul that only the pleasure of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Just saying those words, I feel the glory. Just right now, if you're listening, let's get all charismatic. I want you to put your hand on your head. And Father God, I just release a blessing of your heavenly pleasure right now, the supernatural ecstasies of your spirit. Let it just wash over the people listening right now in a fresh way. That is what satisfies no amount of respect, luxury, status, Teslas, or safety will ever be enough. And what's sad is how many people have wasted the hours and the days of their lives in pursuit of a lie. And that's why you see people even all the way at the tippy top of that mountain who are still miserable. This is what Jim Carrey, yes, that Jim Carrey, had to say recently. Uh, if any, I don't know if any of you guys follow Jim Carrey, but this was in response to a question. He, he kind of had a like a strange interview that went viral where he was talking about um, how he felt like he had experienced the death of his ego and all of that stuff. And somebody said, what brought that on? And this is what he said. He said, I guess just getting to the place where you have everything everybody has ever desired and realizing you're still unhappy. And that you can still be unhappy is a shock when you have accomplished everything you ever dreamt of and more. And then you realize, my gosh, it's not about this. And I wish for everyone to be able to accomplish those things so they can see that. 
But it's not just it's not that greed is just a trap. It's not just that it has us on a treadmill chasing the wind, wasting our days. But it also causes the flames of compassion to grow cold in our hearts. One of the most haunting and convicting verses in the Bible for me is found in Ezekiel. He's talking about why Sodom and Gomorrah were judged and destroyed. And Ezekiel says their judgment came because of their callous mistreatment of the poor. He says they became overfed and unconcerned. When the heart becomes filled with the pride of life and the lust of the eyes, love and compassion get snuffed out like a lid on a candle. So many of the problems that we face today boil down to this. By not knowing God as our source, the divine image in mankind became distorted by greed. And once the heart waxes over with greed, a spiritual vacuum is created where evil can flourish. So what's the answer here? Where's the good news? Well, the answer, my friends, is found once again at the cross of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, the Bible reveals that humanity reflects what we behold. The Bible says that the glory of Jesus is a mirror, and when we behold him, we are transformed into the same image. Ugh, it's taking everything in me not to go on a giant rabbit trail about that, but just think about it for a quick second. What do you see in the mirror? You see yourself. So if the Bible is saying that the glory of Jesus is a mirror, what does that say about you? But going back to my point, when we look at the image of God, when we look at the Trinity, what do we see? Do we see a father who holds out? A stingy God who demands repayment of debts? Competition for status between the father and son and spirit? No. We see an eternal family of selfless, other-centered love. A father who freely bestows all of his glory and honor on the son, who gives that glory back to the father through the power and love of the spirit. When you boil it down, the entire essence of God's nature is generosity. When the father handed over Jesus to die so that we could have life, he completely bankrupted heaven. There was nothing more precious or expensive in all of creation left to give. The Bible says if he didn't even spare his own son but handed him over for us, how will he not freely give us all things? On the cross, we see an unimaginable display of mercy and compassion. It was because of our darkened minds that we lost our governmental position. And it's no coincidence that Jesus was crucified on a hill called Skull Hill at the hands of an oppressive government. You'd probably catch my drift a little more if you could see me pointing at my forehead. Renewed mind, Skull Hill. And that crown of thorns, it's just like the line in that Christmas song, Joy to the World. It says, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. 
Now, when we catch this, when we really see this, it changes everything. No longer do we have to live by our own toil, but we begin to live our lives by the toil of Jesus on our behalf. No longer do we live by our own limited resources. We begin to live from his unlimited heavenly resources. Stingy, self-focused living is like constantly eating and never exercising. It causes serious health issues for your spirit because it's not how you're designed. But now that we live in the garden, where instead of waking up each day wondering how we're going to get our needs met, we become free to be, to be a blessing to others. And it is in this kind of open-hearted, extravagant generosity that has no regard for how deserving others are that we step back into the image of God that we lost. There's got to be a shift in our thinking. We have got to stop approaching God as little orphans looking for our next blessing and realize that in Christ, we are so blessed that a thousand lifetimes isn't enough to give it all away. But as long as the church is still dazzled by the glistening idols of wealth and status, God's abundance will remain untapped and unrealized. But when the church catches this garden revelation, when we encounter firsthand the extravagant, over-the-top, selfless generosity of a God who shares his absolutely unlimited resources, we will see God's dream fulfilled in the earth. I believe we will see it just like in the book of Acts. There will, there will not be a single one among us who has need. What would happen if we took that idea of being one body seriously? Like, do we not realize that if one part of the body is injured, the whole body suffers? If one part is in lack, are we not all in lack? What would happen if we believed Jesus when he said, if you have two coats, give one to your neighbor? What would happen if our death grip on property and money and status and equipment and food and homes and things loosened? What if instead of owning the pride of our own toil, we saw all things as coming from God and all things as belonging to Him. I believe the world would be turned upside down. But here's what I want to end with. Is this all just theoretical theology? Is it just nice ideas? Or is this garden revelation something we can take to the bank? With all of this in mind, I want to revisit a famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And it's been read to each of us so many times, it's probably lost a lot of its power, but I want to look at it with fresh eyes. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not toil or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the nations of the earth run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. And so, my friends, it is a promise that when we give, it will come back to us, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, poured into our lap. Now, do we believe that? Do we really believe that? If we think about the feeding of the 5,000, it all happened because of a young boy's willingness to give away his lunch. Now, in that story, Jesus had already mentioned that no one present had eaten in days. And so I don't, I don't think we often think about the fact that the boy had an important choice to make. What if he handed it all over and he didn't get to eat? How was he supposed to know that Jesus was going to multiply it? His own disciples didn't even know he was going to multiply it. And yet this boy surrendered the little that he had because he learned to trust Jesus completely for everything. And through that one act of generosity, he unleashed provision for the entire community, and then some. And that is the essence of biblical prosperity. Not that God wants to give you a Rolex and a summer home and an Embraer lineage private jet if you give your paycheck to the man on TV. No, but as you reflect the image of God in radical generosity, you will mysteriously and supernaturally find all of your needs met according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And God always leaves leftovers. As it says in Second uh, Timothy, he is the God who provides all things for our enjoyment. And so I pray for you right now. I bless you that all of your anxiety would be thoroughly and completely defeated in this area of money. I bless you to have a loose grip on, on passing things like possessions and houses and cars. And I pray that you feel the joy of sharing, of meeting someone else's needs, knowing that you are without a doubt going to be taken care of by your father. And I pray that God would do what he says in, in the prophet Micah and open the windows of heaven that you would experience so much blessing that you wouldn't be able to give it away or comprehend it all. Be blessed, be confident, and be generous. Love you guys. Thank you for listening today. Oh, and by the way, let me tell you how you can practice your generosity. Thank you so much for listening to the House of Bliss podcast. If you'd like to support this ministry, it is super easy to do so. All you've got to do is go down and hit the link in the description, visit our Patreon page, and sign up. Any amount of monthly giving is going to unlock all kinds of extras and behind-the-scenes rewards. Another quick and easy way you can support us is you can just give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Each and every one of those goes a long way. 
I'm praying that God seals everything you heard today in your heart and that you stay rooted and grounded in his everlasting love. Thanks again. God bless.